Today's guest is Frederick Mel, the founder and editor of Edition de Parfum, a fragrance house started 20 years ago prompted by Frederick's desire to revive the traditions of the fragrance industry while challenging its trendier conventions. When the perfume industry began to shift to a universal one-size-fits-all model, Frederick saw an opportunity to modernize the conversation surrounding fragrance. In creating Edition, Frederick collaborates with the top perfumers in the world to create scents with the artistic considerations of timeless, liquid artwork. In this conversation, we speak to Frederick about traveling through the senses, a perfumer's role as an artist and expressionist, and fragrance psychology, how scent plays a subconscious role in communicating our identity and our underlying desires. Here's Frederick on the line. So thank you so much for joining me today on the Art of Travel podcast. Where in the world are you right now? I'm in Long Island. I'm in a place called Hampton Bays, where I've been since actually the beginning of that nightmare, which uh, because of that house that I'm in is not a nightmare for me. And is this where you've been throughout the quarantine? Yes, we have been here since early, very early March. What has your stay been like for you? I mean, it, it sounds almost obscene, I find, in, in the, considering that this horrible disease has sort of touched so many people. But for us, I mean, you know, we, we are so blessed with a nice house and a nice family. And I have grown up children and we were all together for months. Uh, and I felt that It was a bit of a blessing as far as our family is concerned because I would have never thought that in my life I'd be able to see all my children at the same time for that length of time, of a time. Uh, my, my children <laughs> will more and more like to have vacations away from us. So we'll, we'll probably see them together in very short periods of time. And so that, that was a fantastic opportunity to have a little bit more. It was odd because they are grown-ups, so it's, it's like having children but grown-ups. But it was a, an unforgettable moment. And did you find that with your now adult children, was it interesting to see that the dynamics still exist, even though they're, you know, grown-ups now, you still sort of retreat into these family roles? Well, <laughs> uh, you're right. It's... It, it takes a bit of adjustment because they are not children anymore. And uh, and yes, we are their parents, but there is no reason for sort of going back to like a previous long gone order. So uh, yes, they are our children, but, they, but but we have to treat them like adults. So it's a it's a funny adjustment. And it's very easy when we see each other in short periods of time, a weekend or so. But when you stay together uh, as a pack for four months, You know, the dynamics change, and I thought that was quite interesting. Each of them sort of probably had a different experience, um, but all in all, I think it was very nice. Emptied our cellar, it was wonderful. And prior to this, how did you divide your time? Were you traveling a lot for work? My Edition Parfum is still a French company, although I have been uh, living in the U.S. for since 2006. We have a creative office here. And obviously, the commercial office runs the U.S., but the main company is in France. And most of the top perfumers, apart from a handful like Carlos Benaim, for instance, who is here, uh, most of the top perfumers are located in France. So I spent <clears throat> about, I'd say, a fourth of my time in France. And we also have this house in the south of France where I go on vacation. And on top of that, um, there is the rest of the world to cover because... Uh, my name is on the door and people for good or bad reasons want to see me. So, you know, I, I go to Russia, I go to the Middle East. I, I've been going to China quite frequently recently, uh, which has become a huge market for us. Uh, so, yes, I travel the world. And where did you grow up originally? So I grew up in Paris, in the left bank of Paris, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, to be very precise, in a family which was... Uh, partly in perfumery and, and 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 otherwise interested in culture, very close to the movie industry. So I'm very French. This being said, um, because my father had very strong ties to this country, he went to school here, um, he went to college here, uh, then he worked for an American bank for many, many years. I was spending many of my summers, I mean, I spent many of my summers in the U.S. and then I went to school here. And I must say that America offered me this sort of 
freedom, which the French educational system didn't give me. And I thrived in the US. And I suppose that the little self-confidence that I have in me, I, I, I developed here. So the part of my upbringing, which I spent in this country, was crucial to, to who I am today. And what would you say is the biggest difference between, you know, the education in France versus the U.S.? So I'll give you two examples. I mean, first, a generality. The French believe that there is a certain model that a child should conform to, and it's walk or die, basically. Uh, you are that, and either you are gifted for that model and you are, uh, your personality is coherent with it, Uh, and you're doing very well, and I've seen that with some of my children, or you're not, uh, either because you're not ready for it or because you like art rather than a sort of basic academic uh, uh, fields, and, and then you suffer. And uh, so many of us had to go through that, unfortunately. I think uh, education in America, um, or the best of education in America, is more individual. It's more trying to get the best of each kid, It's slightly more modeled to their personality. And it's trying to get, yes, the best out of them rather than shaping them into a certain rigid form. I think one way that really defines also the difference between the two educations, and I must say that on that side, my French education left a little trace in me, is the way we are taught to write. In France, when you're given, when you're asked to write a text and you're given four hours, Most kids have to sort of think about what they are going to say for at least an hour, and then they sort of write a general frame to sort of order their thoughts, and then they start write, writing. And there might be a second draft, but not really, because usually the structure is so precise that they just fill up that structure. As opposed to America, where you draft and redraft and re-redraft, and maybe in the end, it's more or less the same, But I think it sort of shows that America is all about energy and effort. And France mm. is very much about planning uh, and ordering your thoughts. And it's a, it's a very different way of thinking. I suppose that you also have many Americans with very orderly minds and French that are creative, but they, they come from um, different upbringings. Yes, as an outsider um, who spent a lot of time in France, I, I did notice that brands in, in France are very bureaucratic, but there's also, you know, a lot of beauty to the structure. And I'm curious to know, do you feel more creative here in the U.S. when you're creating editions? Or what do you take from each city? I think that the simple fact that I went against the grain, against Every single idea about the business, you know, people thought that perfumery was going to become a commodity, that it was all about big numbers, that the perfume was not so important anymore, that it was safer to conform to the prevailing distribution, which was uh, self-service, as you find in airports and so on. And so therefore, perfumery had to sort of morph into something where you create a very powerful image to drive a perfume, which is like a one-size-fits-all type of perfume, but everything is sort of more on the image rather than, than focused on what's in the bottle. And I sort of decided to go completely against that grain in order to, to prove that we could still make extraordinary, luxurious, modern perfumery. Uh, I decided to use an old recipe and concentrate on what was contained in the bottle. It's uh, the content which I thought was more important rather than the container. And so to think like that and to structure this idea of Edition Parfum, I mean, first of all, the whole idea of a publishing house is very much coming from where I come from in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. The design of this company was very much influenced by a French publishing house called Gallimard. So it, it, the way I structured my thoughts was very French because it's a very organized uh, system that I created then. It was just not just the idea of calling the best perfumers in the industry and giving them free reign. Uh, it was also a way to present them as artists. It was a system of bottles to ensure that they would have freedom in the long run. There was a whole 
selling system where we had our own store with providing a very specific service and so on. So all that was very structured. And I suppose that my Frenchness and my French upbringing or way of thinking helped me. But if I hadn't had this sort of entrepreneurial way of thinking, this idea, this belief in myself that going completely in the opposite direction than the rest of the, of the business, um, if it hadn't been for America, uh, from you know my part of my bringing in America, I don't think that it would have happened. I would not never have had the confidence. And I'm curious to learn when did you move to the U.S.? Um, so I moved to America in 2006. I I moved here for several reasons. I, I had four children. Um, we were going to completely change our lives. Uh, it was not just a moving for a few years, like an expat with a new job. It was literally moving to America. And so um, first, Edition Parfum was launched in 2000. Then we launched in 2002 at Barney's, where we were tremendously successful. Uh, Barney's being very, very coherent with what I was doing uh, in terms of look, in terms of spirit and state of mind. And the clientele was very much down our alley. And so it was an amazing success. And when Barney's decided to expand and go from three stores to 13, I think it was their original plan, um, they told me that they were planning to organize the whole beauty business around my brand. That meant running a business through, I mean, you know, all over America. I mean, it's America is a continent. And I had to get organized. What people don't know is that people that sell perfume in department stores work for the brands, in fact. And so I, I was going to have to run basically 13 stores. And I knew that this expansion was also going to have to be followed by opening the opening of a few freestanding stores. So business-wise, I had to be there. I could have handed the keys to somebody else. But at that time, I mean, it sounds crazy, but... but uh, Edition Parfum was so unusual. It was such a new proposition that there was no one coming from those big groups um, in America that really knew how I worked. It was a, a very different way of working. And so I didn't want to give the keys to, you know, an unknown who would have shaped the company around his or her beliefs rather than mine. And so being the control freak that I am, uh, I decided to do it myself. The other thing is that, as I said, I had four children. I was very fortunate to have this dual culture. And I thought that it would be an opportunity for them to also have that. So that was that. And, and also, I was running this small, very successful company in France, but everything was very much around me and um, and everybody was sort of jumping into my office every five minutes. And and I felt that I needed a little bit of distance vis-a-vis -vis that. Uh, so that also sort of brought me here. So it's, it's, a, it, it's business, but it's also family that brought me here. And also France had voted against Europe and I'm profoundly pro-Europe. And, and I was really pissed. But I would not have moved for that. And I wanted to give some background context for our listeners and wanted to explore a little bit of your roots. In what ways did your family influence your foray into the industry? And I know that you worked in the arts a little bit prior to even launching editions. Could you share a little bit more about that? Obviously, it did. I mean, my mother was uh, working for Christian Dior. Um, her father, who had never knew because he died before I was born when he was very young, was only 54, um, had had this prominent career in the beauty industry. He was working with Coty, who was literally the inventor of modern perfumery. Uh, he was very close to him for, for many years and then decided to open his own business. And then being a successful businessman in, um, in the cosmetic business, he helped his friend, his childhood friend, Christian Dior, to open... Uh, what became Parfum Christian Dior. So he was the founder of Parfum Christian Dior, which he did really to sort of uh, to support his his childhood friend. And so I was brought up in that legend. I was um, my mother was very committed to Dior. Um, I suppose it was a way to keep on being with her father somehow. And so all his principles 
I heard since I was a child. And also, I was very aware of what perfume was since, since I exist, really. Uh, although I was not taught about, you know, how to smell or any of that, but I was keen. And it was always part of my scenery. And also, uh, my father used to read, was an avid reader, he didn't sleep much, he read one book a night. Um, he was sharing a lot with his brothers, including Michael Louis, who was a, a very important movie director. So I, I was very lucky to be brought up in, in, in this. And my parents were art collectors. And, and so I was dragged from one museum to another gallery to, to all of that all my childhood. And I developed a taste for it and started, you know, a little foray into this um, after school. My thought, my idea was not to enter the perfume industry because I really saw that as my mother's territory. And it's not something I wanted to get into because of that. And, and so I thought, you know, the way I functioned, that's the way I saw myself when I was 18, literally. I want something artistic because I knew that I had a sensitivity for it. And I want to do business because I, I don't know if there was fun. And so um, I thought I would become an art dealer. So I started art history, worked for galleries, uh, did all of that. And then at one point, you know, typical college kid, I, I had to make a bit of money on the side. Um, I also worked with photographers. And then college ended. Uh, and I needed to find a job. I wasn't so sure. I was tempted by photography, certainly not by perfumery. Um, the art business uh, was not so tempting anymore. So I went into advertising, thinking that maybe I could become an art director within uh, perfumery or outside perfumery, because I had a sensitivity to, to imagery, a real culture, and all of that. Uh, but then if ever perfumery would would sort of grow within me, so it, it, it was there, you know, I would know about a certain type of marketing. Uh, I would know how to sell a product. I would have enough knowledge after what I did with photographers to develop image. Um, and so, so that's where I was until someone poached me uh, to work in the lab. And that man was one of the most important. A person in the industry who was running the best lab in the industry in those days, uh, which was called Rouen. And that's how all of a sudden uh, I landed into a lab and I realized that, I mean, to, to say a big word, I mean, I felt that it was my destiny. I mean, um, I felt very much at home. Um, so that's, that's my little uh, resume before perfumery. What was this aha moment that catalyzed this change? Was it an immediate feeling when you entered the lab that this was sort of your calling? It's strangely exactly that. I remember one evening I went to visit that lab and it was a sort of very 70s looking place. It looked already out of fashion then. And oh, they were, we were in the mid 80s. And there were all these transparent offices with perfumers in them. And for some reason, I had this sort of feeling of deja vu and I had this feeling of belonging. What people probably don't know is that when I was a child, uh, in France, you have one day off on the middle of the week. It used to be Thursday in my days. Uh, it soon became Wednesday. And little kids have an entire day. And when my mother didn't know what to do with me because she was go uh, working at Dior, she would take me at Dior. And her office then was just outside Paris. And it was on top of the factory. And so that lab that I visited, I had already seen as a little child. And, and I, I don't know if, they, if, they are, if, if that feeling is related to that, but I really had a sense of belonging the minute I walked in. It was really odd, actually. I remember that moment vividly. I, I, I remember all these sort of smells from my childhood. Uh, walking in Biarritz, where it always rains, um, on the sort of warm, wet asphalt that has this precise smell. I remember, we live not far from a golf course, I remember the smell of cut grass. I remember, you know, my grandmother's house that always had a big bouquet of Casablanca Lily. Um, I, I have all these, but I don't know which one I smelled first. Um, it's also the smell of food. 
it's all of that. Maybe it's the metro in Paris also, because I, I always took the metro. I love the smell of the metro. It's a sort of an acquired taste. Uh, it's the smell of Paris for me. And um, it's all of these. But maybe it's, um, it's Miss Dior, because my mother was wearing Miss Dior when I was a child. I have all of these in my head, but the first one, no idea. I thought maybe you were uh, bottle-fed Miss Dior perfume. Yes, uh, I, I might have been bottle-fed by perfume. I always wondered that, actually. It's funny that you say that. I don't know. I have this uh, very good friend who I won't name, who I adore, who is a bit of an eccentric, who pretends that he remembered when he was born. And um, maybe if I was working a little bit more on myself, I would go back to um, feeling bottle-fed by Miss Dior. But um, <laughs> I probably was. Despite your family being a huge force in the fragrance industry, I think one thing I do find really fascinating is the ways that you have diverged from the industry because what you've created with editions or edition is really, really beautiful. And I'm so, I would love to learn what was going through your mind when you decided to launch editions? Well, a lot, actually. It, it, it was a very progressive thing. You know, it's like going to America, um, as I was saying before, where you don't go for one reason. You know, I was a successful consultant. I was working for um, uh, Christian Lacroix at that time. And there was no real reason why, one reason why I should do that. This being said, uh, the industry was taking a turn which not only I didn't agree with, but I knew that I was not going to be very good at it. Um, because it was so systematic, it was no, so number-orientated, it was so non-artistic, um, and I'm much too pure to... And, and, I, and I, have, I look so much up to this business and to what perfumery should be that, that I didn't feel comfortable with that. Also, the perfumers that I was working with, mostly Pierre Bourdon, but also Jean-Claude, all of them, were complaining about the fact that they were asked to always do the same thing for less and less money and less and less time, and that it was a numbers game, uh, and that people uh, that they were dealing with uh, were not perfume connoisseurs anymore, that they were not risk takers, um, because perfumery only a few years prior was run by a few chairmen of those perfume companies that knew quite a lot about perfumery, and it was their fun in life to choose the, the scent themselves. And actually, many of them were quite good at it. And so there was not, none of all these personalities had disappeared and were replaced by people coming from the mass market industry and PNG and so on. And so they had no respect for, for, for these people. So they were bored. And on the other hand, the other part of my world, uh, the evening part of my world, my friends who were are mostly artists, um, I noticed were wearing less and less perfume and were walking away from perfumery. Uh, and I heard girls saying, and I was fascinated by that, that they were not wearing perfumes anymore, or perfume anymore, sorry, because they either had a choice to smell cheap or to smell like their grandmother or their mother because they saw how beautiful perfume used to be, and they were mostly referring to Guerlain or to all these old great classics we named Miss Dior, Eurissimo, and so on, uh, that had been around for many, many about decades, but they were for them perfumes of the past. They're, these people were all about modernity, and they didn't agree with what modern perfumery was becoming. And so my first feeling was to become like a bridge between those perfumers that were not happy with what they were, with their everyday life and with the way perfumery was, was where the perfumery was heading and those more demanding customer or more sensitive customer. I thought that these two had something to tell one another. Then also, I thought that it was, was very important and it made it my mission to make people understand that people didn't have a choice only of crass perfumery or old perfumery, as if inventive perfumes, as is um, luxury perfumery, was something from the past. And I wanted to show that because of those great artists, 
luxury perfumery could also be modern. Uh, like you have contemporary art. You don't have to paint like Rubens to be a great artist. You can paint like Rothko or... Um, so I wanted to show that. And, and so I started working with perfumers and then I was, I was tagging along. I realized that my job was very similar to one of a, of a book publisher because I had different relationships with each artist. Then I liked this idea of edition. Also, it reminded me of the fact that uh, my father was, had uh, initiated a, a movie production house called Nouvelles Editions de Film, which was my uh, Uncle Louis' movie production house. And so this whole idea of Edition could apply to perfumery. And so I decided to call the company Edition Parfum. And so, so once you have that, then it's a thread that you just pull. And uh, it's a way to say that perfumers are authors, that the perfumes that we are making are sort of liquid works of art, that they are thought like art and not like, you know, a commodity. Um, then it called for this very simple packaging that sort of is very reminiscent of the Gallimard books, where you have a very precise order, where you have the name of the perfumer as an author, um, the name of the perfume, and then the name of the publishing house. So I thought it was a very nice way to give a hierarchy to things. Um, so that's, that's how it all came about. And, and, um, and the rest, you know. And fragrance, like art, is a form of expression. And with additions, you've turned perfumers into artists. Why was it Im important to give recognition and authorship to the perfumers? You know, it's two things. I thought it was only justice. Why would a guy like Edouard Fléchier, who did Poison uh, in 85, or um, a guy like Pierre Bourdon, who did Cool Water just afterwards, or, or, or um, I don't know, Jean-Claude, who did the, the Bulgari Green Tea and so on. These people were responsible for how the streets would smell worldwide, and no one knew who they were. They didn't even know that they existed. And I thought that it was really unfair. But not only was it unfair, I thought it was amazingly stupid because nothing was as boring as advertising for perfume. I mean, it's always the same girl or the same guy who becomes more attractive because he wears such or such perfume. I mean, this is the most boring cliche you can think of. It's 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 a it's a string that has been pulled so many times. It's it, it's it's exhausting. Um, and and then you had the story where perfumers would be. You know, it was at a time where people were talking about chefs, we're talking about decorators, we're talking about makers of different things, uh, clockmakers and so on. Why not talk about perfumers? I mean, they were. I mean, I knew them intimately, and and I knew that they were fascinating people. Um, so it was the story right in, f in front of our eyes um, at, that no one uh, um, thought of, of using. Um, and to me, it was completely obvious. The only thing that made me doubt, because I'm not as self-assured as I might come across to be, is that uh, I was asking myself, why didn't anyone tell the story? It's so totally obvious that it is interesting and that it is sort of justice to talk about these guys. And I, I had a doubt until I la launched and until we sort of met that instant success um, that, you know, I was wondering why. And there was no why. Uh, it's just that people are conventional and didn't think of it. I read a quote by you where you mentioned that universal fragrance is what killed the fragrance industry. And with additions, you've created a entire product line of fragrances that are that are very personalized. And why is this personalization such an important feature for fragrance? So they're not personalized, they're personal and they're specific. And if you think of all the great perfume classics, way before me, Chanel number no. five, Chalimar, Diorissimo, and so on they all are incredibly specific. They all were new, generally, when they came out. So they were very inventive. And some people love them, some people hate them. In other words, you can also use an analogy and think that perfumes are very much like people. 
The people that you admire are really specific usually, and they have a very strong character. The people that everybody sort of like-ish in college, that tags along because he's okay, in the end is going to be quite lonely uh, because he's quite uninteresting. And so my idea was to make perfumes of real character with real identity because they are the only ones that sort of uh, resist the test of time. And that, you know, perfume has to be treated like art and you never try to make a painting to please everybody. You try to make something very beautiful and very specific. And last, in terms of commercial strategy, if you want to see it like that, I observed through the years that, I mean, you know, and actually it's my, my business school was um, going to nightclubs, really, uh, where I realized that, um, yeah, it's... Uh, you don't know how useful that was. You observe people and you come to realize if you're a little observant, uh, um, if, if you have a decent eye or a decent nose, that different kinds of people wore different types of perfumes. So of course I didn't know, I didn't have the vocabulary to describe them, but I had a very good feeling of which guy or which girl would wear which type of perfume. and. That gave me a huge head start, better than any part of my upbringing with a mother in this business. Uh, this was the real thing, the real deal. And because when I entered the lab, I realized that, you know, some perfumes were, were designed to say, this is how I smell when I undress. Some perfumes say, this is how I smell because I'm so squeaky clean and so perfect and uh, some people some perfumes i designed to say oh i am sort of shy and romantic and sort of have that so each perfume tells something about the character of the person that wears it and usually people are very good in a co quite unconscious way at finding the kind of perfume that really suits them and if it suits them is that it matches their character so that's why I don't want a one-size-fit-all perfume uh, because it will never work. I mean, it only works if you sort of back it with a lot of advertising and you have a big star endorsement and it works for five minutes. But because people get bored of them. The great, that's why also great perfumes are always so specific and they are worn by very specific people. So I organized the company in the sense that because I'm, I'm asking perfumers that have such different personalities that, that are so different from one another, they come up with perfumes that are very different from one, one another. We have probably the most eclectic collection of perfume in the industry done by the best people, technically, and probably the best artists in the business. So they are the best in each category. And so therefore, it, it's, it takes a little bit more effort to find a perfume within Edition Parfum, because you know, out of those 30 perfumes, there, there is certainly one for you, but, but you have to go through that treasure hunt. And to make it easier, we have those, uh, those perfume experts that run each store that are a little bit like, muse like museum guides, that according to what you like and to who you are, and, and they are very good at, at understanding that, will direct you towards so, such or such perfume. And according to your reaction, they get closer and closer to, uh, to uh, what's right for you. So that's why instead of, of, because I really don't think that there is one way to seduce, that there is one kind of people, and that, that therefore there should be one kind of perfume, because I, I really don't think that, it, it's, um, that people are all the same, I have decided to have a very eclectic collection. And I wanted to explore this fragrance psychology a little bit more. What does a person's fragrance choice reveal about their identity? I think that, and actually it's quite fascinating, a perfume says a lot about uh, your personality, uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I'm quite shy, and usually when I see someone, I look at their eyes to understand, to get a vibe. Uh, to understand how they are, because the eyes are such a mirror to your soul somehow. Uh, but also, their fragrance says so much about them. 
um, a very conventional one size fit all type of perfume that you find in some airports um, is going to say that you know you can settle settle for something very banal, um, and it already says something about you. Someone that has incredibly heavy and and sort of soothing type of patchouli is generally going to be very, very sensuous. I mean, this, these are very big cliches. Certain floral perfumes will say that people, you know, are within themselves very much and are, are very, and are looking for their own little paradise close to their childhood. Um, some people, I, I don't want to be sensuous. They just want to be clean. What I'm saying about perfume, you could say about clothes. You choose your clothes in a very conscious way because you are quite aware of those codes most of the time. So it's quite likely that if you wear a miniskirt, for instance, and you try to show as many parts of your body, you want to seduce and you want to be sexy, usually, if you understand those codes. Uh, I mean, it's just common sense. And you sort of do that being very, very conscious. But you can, because you're conscious of those codes, you can bluff and wear those very sort of alluring uh, type of clothes and pretend that you are this little conquistador on two legs. In the end, you can do that being incredibly shy um, and trying to sort of prove the opposite of what, I mean, show the opposite of what you are uh, as a conscious decision. But when, you, when people choose a perfume, Usually they are not that clever because they only do that instinctively and they can't trick the system because they don't know it so well. Because you choose a perfume because you think it's right, so really it's your soul buying the perfume. But you don't, it's as if you were speaking a language that you didn't, you couldn't listen to. And in that sense, the perfume is way more, I mean, as because you can't bluff over perfume, the perfume is quite revealing. Uh, about even more revealing about your personality. So when you sell perfume, one of the s sort of little giggle that you have in your, I mean, respectful giggle that you have in your head is when you have someone walking into a store and you think, oh, he's like this or she's like that. And they ask for the opposite. So you see that they can, they are absolutely bluffing. I mean, to me, it's, it's, um, I am married to, to a psychologist and people always, think that she sees through people, which is not the case. Uh, that's not how it works. Uh, they just ask very good questions and listen also well. But that's a different thing. But um, within two seconds, I probably know more. And then I don't go further. She goes further. Uh, I know more about who I'm dealing with than her. It goes faster. The smell goes, is it sort of immediate. Okay, so my favorite perfume from Edition is Carnal Flower. Can you tell me what is the inspiration and story behind this scent? So Carnal Flower, this is, this is speaking about that, this is a fascinating perfume because it's done from tuberose. Tuberose has always been intriguing to perfumers because on one hand it's a flower, so you can pretend because it's a flower that you're dealing with innocence and freshness and this feeling of untouched and nature and so on. But then if you put your nose on it, it smells so dark, so fleshy, so deep, not really that clean and, and really sort of almost mean somehow that now you get the opposite. So although it's a flower, it almost behaves like a wicked person. And therefore, tuberose in the history of perfume have always been associated to femme fatale and to people, that, that type of people, because it's, it can be sort of both. Now, historically, there has been one great masterpiece in perfume called Fraca, which was created for a, a company called Piguet, who was a French couturier, uh, by a, a famous perfumer in our industry, who was called Germaine Cellier, who was sort of a genius. And um, she invented literally that tuberose type of perfumery, of perfume. And since then, many, many people have been copying Fraca. I mean, when they were, sorry, when, when uh, perfumers wanted to make a tuberose, they were making a knockoff of Fraca. So it's a 
fracas a bit sweeter, fracas a bit fresher, and so on. But they were never getting out of that, what we call a perfume structure. And so with Dominique being very immodest as usual, or ambitious, let's put it this way, we decided to, to make our own version of tuberose. Uh, and I chose Dominique Rapion because he is arguably the best, one of the best perfumers, if not the best perfumer in the industry. Technically, he's a, an athlete. He loves white flowers. He loved that sort of seductive type of white flowers. He's probably the biggest connoisseur of tuberose. And so it was a logical choice. Now, tuberose is easier to make when you use the natural ingredient which is very expensive. There was no limit in price and we were ready to spend as much money as needed. And plus, when you work with a perfumer as famous and, and revered as Dominique, generally you have access to raw materials that other perfumers don't have. And this case confirmed it. We had an extraordinary Indian, uh, natural Indian tuberose extraction which was then re-refined with sort of high technology, it's called molecular distillation. So it was the purest tuberose on the market and it was exclusive to us. And so with all of that, it's like, um, you know, the French army before the First World War, we thought that we'd win it in a month uh, and it lasted four years. It, 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 it more or less happened to us. We thought, I thought like, ooh, easy peasy. We know exactly what we want. And, and it took us 18 months to make and it wasn't, nightmare. But in the end, we have made a perfume, which is really an alternative to fracas, which is redef redefining tuberose in a much more real way. It's probably closer to the flower. It's way more mo modern. It's like a Photoshop tuberose with a bit of gardenia in it, which is the cousin of tuberose. So it's really like a Photoshop flower. And it's, it's even more interesting than what was done before in the sense that some people see it as the smell of purity because at the beginning of tuberose, you have this flower shop type of smell, which is very aquatic, very fresh, very transparent, and can be innocent. And then you have this dark heart, and then you finish with this sort of coconutty type of milky, very comfortable smell. So it's a bit of a contradiction. And some people see it through one eye and some people see it through another. So it says a lot about how mysterious you are, Olivia. <laughs> wow, that was a great reading. Thank you so much. I would love to see that, like a sort of personality test, but with edition. <laughs> Believe me, it's fun, and it happens every day at our stores. <laughs> um, so I'm so curious to learn, what emotions or feelings do you seek to capture in a fragrance? I mean, emotions are always different because, as I said, there are so many types of different perfumes. This being said, although our collection is a bit, let's be, let's be really modest, it's a bit like the Met, where um, you can have a, a, a picture by Von Eich and a picture by Pollock. Um, but then, in great art, you always have, um, although the, those pieces are amazingly different, you, you still have to have something very specific, done with a great technique, that sort of exudes that energy. Um, and this is what I suppose what art is about. That's the way I see it in a way. Uh, in perfumery, you have to have one, a clear personality, a perfume that is very, very easy to recognize. And so instead of blurring the message, we try at Edition to make it as precise as possible which is forcing us to take more risks. It's also forcing us to work with better artists because uh, a great perfume formula is like a great text. It's short enough and, and very synthetic so that it expresses this idea. So specific, uh, then very inventive. We don't want to copy things. We want to maybe set trends, but make things that, that are inventive yet. We want things to be timeless, and there are certain ways of doing that. And then, technically, a perfume, it sounds very materialistic, but it's a very uh, material object. It has to last, it has to diffuse. I grew up in this business in the 80s, where perfumes were diffusing, and I'm very much of that school. If someone spends a lot of money 
on a scent, they want to be smelled. So um, it has to be built like that. So long lasting and, and, and diffusive. And then there is the most difficult part, and that's what qualifies a smell as being a perfume rather than a smell. It has to mingle with the skin in such a way that you don't know when you're smelling a person wearing the perfume, whether the person smells like that or whether it's the perfume. Where is the border? And if you manage to make a perfume that becomes one with someone's body, that's the winner. I always say that I'd rather have people re remembering someone's smell rather than a perfume because you win when you become when the perfume becomes one with the wearer. Yeah, so there's a lot of personal chemistry involved too in in creating yes. a fragrance. And when it comes to the image and advertising of fragrance, why is it that there is always this pervasive image of people falling in love when they're selling a new fragrance bottle? Is romance a huge psychological force in creating scents? Yes, but it has become a convention. And it's done and uh, it's become a bit of too much of a cliche by my book. People always look for an aphrodisiac. Uh, sex makes the world go round. People always try to seduce. The most obvious way to be attractive and to be more magnetic is to generate an aura. This is why you need perfume. It's, it's... So when you advertise, basically you say, you try to sort of convince people that the aura that you are selling is going to change their life and, and realize that the dream of theirs uh, of becoming more man magnetic. Of course, this is what we are seeking somehow. And, you know, when I was a child, I suppose that one of the things that helped me in life is that I, my mother was always saying, oh, that's a sexy scent. And I was, you know, I didn't know what sex was and I didn't hardly know what scent was. And, and I was wondering, like, oh, what does she mean? And then... You know, understanding that through going out a lot and sort of gave me a little heads up and and helped me tremendously in the rest of my career. And whenever I make a perfume, I think of seduction and I think of sex appeal, of course. But perfume can be soothing. And think of what also, there are other actions. There's not only sex in life. It's a very important part of life, but it's not the only one. Uh, I mean, the Egyptians used to be way more spiritual about perfume and used to think that perfume would sort of help you travel in the outer world. Perfumes like haute colognes were made to, were almost like medicines um, in the 18th century. And so I think that perfume can come back to that. And, you know, at a time where we're not supposed to go out as often, as a time where we are really anxious for all the reasons that we know, uh, having this little feel-good thing, smell, could be a, incredibly useful. And instead, I mean, because at the moment, you don't want to splash yourself with something which is going to allow, to help you in that great entrance in a restaurant or in, at a club, uh, saying, you know, a turnaround, a head turner, you know, that says, that shouts to the room, I smell like that naked. You don't want that because, first of all, you're not going to the club. Uh, you're not going to the restaurant. You're in your living room. And you are in front of your TV or your computer with other people, if lucky, or on your own. And in any case, you need soothing rather than head turner. And I think in that sense, the kind of perfumes that we have made that are a little bit like that. I mean, something like L'Eau d'Hiver that Jean-Claude Elena made, which is this very transparent perfume yet warm, which is a bit of a contradiction in term, and in that sense it was very creative, which is a very reassuring type of smell. Um, it smells a bit like Play-Doh type of thing. That type of scent, I think, is very much needed at the moment. And I think to that point, what you were saying, uh, this advertising that all these ads that say, you know, wear my perfume and you'll be more sexy, are a bit dated, especially at the moment. Yeah, I think that's why I was so drawn to Edition, is the fact that you had a range of fragrances for different types of settings. And even like, I, I almost see fragrance as like a costume that I put on in the morning. It 
feeds an element into who I want to be that day. And I wanted to know, where do you go to gather inspiration for your fragrance? So the way we work is um, completely upside down um, in a way. Usually people, uh, fragrance house, I mean, fragrance brands, work on a concept, work on a story, and then they try to create a perfume around them. What we do, I suppose, because, you know, I come from a lab um, and I share that language, a common language with perfumers, is we develop a perfume concept. So it's really a chemical language that we share. Uh, and then we create that smell with this idea of making sure that it reconnects with the skin. And slowly but surely, we know the sort of personality that we want to get in terms of smell. As it becomes a reality, the perfume is sort of telling me who he is. And I find a name which is my reading of the perfume. So we were completely upside down. Now, as to where we find inspiration, it's mostly in our conversations uh, with perfumers. And it's either from a raw material, whether it's a completely new chemical, it's like a present for us because it's like a, it's like a new color to the rainbow. And therefore, the, it, it offers us so many new possibilities. And so we want to try to, like an abstract painter with a new color, we want to match it to another one and then to another one. And just in conversation, we already imagine where we are going and we can almost smell it. So it can start from one piece like that, new or old, or it can be something that an object I will have found or that a perfumer will have found on a journey. Maybe it's a flower that we have smelled in Tahiti or, uh, or vanilla bean or, or a piece of wood, or, or maybe even the smell of a laundry uh, detergent or the smell of a shampoo or, or, you know, something as mundane as that. And then we describe that. Then it's like a collage. We take that piece and we, and for instance, when we started Portrait of a Lady with Dominique Ropion, uh, before Portrait of a Lady, there was Géranium pour Monsieur. I had lunch with Dominique and in the course of the conversation, I said that uh, my father used to use a mouthwash, which was really old. It was the mouthwash which was designed by Louis XV, which was a French king in the 18th century. It was probably the first mouthwash of this, uh, I don't know, one of the first mouthwashes in history. And this thing always, I thought, always smelled good. And I was wondering whether it was me as a child or that loved it because it was used by my father, whether it was truly good. But... As a grown-up and a perfume professional, I thought there was something interesting in it. So we went to a pharmacy. We went to buy the mouthwash. I told Dominique what I liked in it. He liked the idea. And, and within a day, I had a copy of the piece, because we smell in pieces, that we both liked in it. And then from that, we added raw material after raw material. And this became... A, a, a very good perfume that I use all the time called Geranium pour Monsieur. After that, using Geranium pour Monsieur, I proposed to Dominique to use another piece, which was the, the, the dry down of Geranium pour Monsieur and inflate it. Because I thought that it could, if inflated and sort of cut from the rest of the perfume, it could be a perfume of its own and probably this time a perfume more drawn to women. And Dominique had the idea to add an enormous slug of, of, of Turkish rose. And this became Portrait of a Lady. So you see, it's very much like a Lego. And, it's, and we steal pieces in our lives. And then we pair them. So it's a bit like collage also. We, we sort of cut those images and, and stack them next to one another. Is there a certain fragrance that holds a high sentimental value for you? I know this is a hard question because I'm sure each one represents a different idea and phase. They do represent a different idea and phase. And, and they are all quite sentimental. I must say that when I uh, moved to the U.S., um, I, was, I started working with Maurice Roussel which was built around a raw material that we both love called cashmere. And it's very difficult to use big, big 
uh, uh, pieces of it. Uh, usually you use, not only because it's expensive, but it's hard to use. And it's, it's used as a player rather than as a soloist. And so we decided to have it as a main player. And we wanted the perfume of warm skin. Um, it was really an abstraction. And, uh, and so we, 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 we built this and it was very much uh, a portrait of this very intimate relationship that I have with my wife. And uh, that's the way I was functioning. So it was very much, there was a lot of me in this one. Uh, and it's called Dans tes bras, In Your Arms. And, uh, and so that's probably one of the most sentimental ones. There are many, many, uh, I mean, in, in what I do, I mean, this is just one story, but in what I do, I put so much of, my, of myself, although I'm, I'm at the service of authors, of, of perfumers, I get so involved that uh, th there's a lot of projection, a lot of uh, information that I provide that come from my, my life. Um, and so I have a very sentimental rapport to many of those, those perfumes. And I wanted to pivot a little bit and congratulate you on your upcoming book with Rizzoli. What can we expect to find in the book? <laughs> that was my COVID project. Uh, I, I pulled many, many images from my archives and, and, and my computer. Um, and it was, I wanted it to be a bit like a scrapbook. I mean, that COVID was sort of quite, came at the right time to sit down and look back. Something that I very, very rarely do. I mean, I always look forward or look at, uh, or try to live the, the moment. I started sort of looking at images of where I came from to explain who I was. It's, 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 it's a bit about Edition, but also about myself. Where I came from, why I did this. It's very much our conversation, actually. Um, it's, you know, why I designed uh, perfume bottles like that and there are the different iterations. Uh, so you see, there's a lot of material about uh, how I built this brand, uh, why we design stores like that. There's a lot about myself, as I said. And there are all the different projects that we worked on over the last 20 years. I was wondering if it was going to be enough for a book. And to be honest with you, we could have done two books. And it's those 250 pages are, are quite filled with, uh, with pictures. And, and it's a quite rich content. And I was quite excited as we were making it to sort of go back to, uh, to things that I had almost forgotten and realize how much we did in 20 years. And I must say that when I received the book, when Rizzoli sent it to me and, and I got it, I opened the book and I, I was with one of my children. And I mean, seeing it through his eyes and how impressed he was by how much we had done, all of a sudden I had this feeling of accomplishment, to be honest, which I never want to sort of, you know, I'm not very good at tapping myself in the back. But all of a sudden I, I thought like, you know, after all, we have done something these last 20 years. Congratulations. I cannot wait to receive a copy and see the visual aspects of, of the last 20 years and beyond. Yes, I'm, I'm looking very much forward to the beyond. I am um, quite excited about what's, what's next. I mean, there's going to be a, a new generation of perfumers, which I'm very excited to see fresh. And, um, and also there are so many things yet to be done in this to make this industry more legible and, and show people how interesting it is. What is next for Frederick Mal? Well, what's next is always the next perfume. You know, it's like when you ask a movie director, it's the next film. And there are always ideas. Um, I think that I'd be really depressed if I, I stopped having ideas or if, if we stopped having ideas. I mean, we were in Paris. I was in Paris for a week. I saw, uh, as, as you probably heard, um, Pierre Bourdon, Dominique Ropion, um, uh, um, Jean-Claude Elena, uh, Anne Flippo, and uh, uh, Maurice Roussel, and we sort of were in a room for, so you're talking about almost amongst the best perfumers in history, uh, together in a, in a room for two days. And we had so many ideas just through conversation like that. I mean, it's, it's endless. And that's what's so exciting about this business. What I find exciting is that there's a whole new generation of perfumers now that are in their sort of mid to late 20s that seem to be way better than the previous generation. That was a bit disappointing. 
and way more ambitious and very good technically. And I'm sure that some of these are going to become very good and full-fledged artists. It's a bit early to say now. Um, and all we have to do is to encourage them and, and to gamble on them and to transmit the little we ha I have learned uh, over the years. Um, so that's that. What I find also exciting, and I want that to become a project, is that I think that we, the business, and me included, have not been very good at talking about perfume. We either uh, talk this Chinese language about structures and talk about sheep and oriental and all that, and it's a language that nobody understands, or we talk about, you know, this advertising uh, language that you were referring to, which is so tired. Or we talk now about ingredients, but people don't really know ingredients. So I think that we have to discover a language that touch people in their hearts, yet uh, says the truth about each scent. And this is not an easy task, but it's, it's absolutely something that I would like to work on because I think that it would help uh, companies like ours uh, tremendously, as it has helped people in, in restaurants or in the wine industry. Well, as a bibliophile, I think that Edition definitely expands that vernacular in ways that I wasn't very cognizant of until I even started researching about you and your work and what you've created in the fragrance industry. Thanks. But it's, um, there's still a lot to be done, I think. But I'm, I'm you know, I'm um, <laughs> my first boss, Jean Amique, um, who in this industry was running this lab, one day we were having an argument. He says, remember that I, that I uh, hired you because you're an aspiring playboy and an, and an overly anxious person. And this is the best drive in this industry. And I think I'm, um, I'm not an aspiring playboy anymore because I'm too old, um, but I'm still quite anxious. I'm never satisfied. And this is a blessing and a curse. Um, it's not very comfortable. But it's, it, it's pushing me and perfumers to go further um, and, and to make perfumes that are as uh, accomplished as possible. But it's, uh, it's also pushing me to, to present what we do in, in a better way. Because those perfumes have to be taken seriously and you know, they're, they're, they're done by great masters. And, and I think that they should be presented as well as possible. And for some closing notes, I wanted to ask you a few more questions. What fragrance are you drawn to when you're seeking comfort? I think that comfort comes with a certain sweetness. Um, that's first. It's probably something around, I would say, vanilla, but not that annoying, cheap, a, a, a sort of a cotton candy smell that you have on everything that uh, is to me the ultimate discomfort. I like this vibration also of amber and you know things like uh, labdanum, things like that, or, or even frankincense that is vibrant yet warm again. I mean, I am very much in that, and all this balm smell also. I think this is this is comfort. And the other thing, and it's I don't know what it says about me. I'm more and more drawn towards musks. I mean, the world of musks is, especially those modern chemical musks, is actually quite fascinating. And it absolutely, I mean, it's associated to sex appeal, but I find it very comfortable as well. It's like, um, you know, it's like soft cashmere somehow. What fragrance do you wear on a celebratory occasion? It depends what you celebrate. Sorry, I'm becoming stupidly specific. But... Um, Let's say the first big party after quarantine. If it was very dressed up, I would wear Monsieur uh, by Bruno Jovanovic, which is this bigger than life patchouli, but quite ambery as well and quite soothing and balmy. And it has this touch of rum absolute, which is this rare raw material. It's slightly over the top. It's almost overdressed, but it's so amazingly smart. This is my go-to to go out. During COVID and during, I needed to sort of lift up my spirit. And throughout the summer, I have been wearing Géranium pour Monsieur, which is to me a masterpiece. 
it's it has this sort of brightness to it, but yet it's also soothing in the back. And remember that the back is the origin of Portrait of a Lady. And it's this mixture of sandalwood and a bit of frankincense and a bit of patchouli, but it's also balmy and very musky. It's very beautiful. But yet you have this very bright, fresh topped minty. I love that. So that's that. I mean, my, my, my sort of everyday perfume is Vetiver Extraordinaire by Dominique Ropion. But I suppose that if it was supposed to be, as it was supposed to change, I would go for Monsieur because it's, um, although I travel with this, I, 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 only, I wear it occasionally. Some people wear it every day and it's, it's, it's wonderful. What is one place you look forward to visiting in the future? I'm, I'm, I'm probably uh, going to Egypt this winter. There's nothing more that I like than traveling and, uh, and seeing things. And so I think that's going to be our next stop if we can travel. I mean, I'm saying that a bit hesitant because it's a sort of a bold plan. Before COVID and, and COVID sort of stopped that right away, I was going to go to India, uh, to Rajasthan. I mean, all these places I find very inspiring in spirit, rarely inspiring directly in terms of smell. I find it very difficult to have like a field trip and sort of go like, oh, let's smell this and let's smell that and let's bring that back to the lab. I travel in my head much more when I'm at a lab or I smell things out of those little bottles and they make me travel as much. Seeing things and seeing different lights and even sometimes encountering, you know, when I first went to Egypt, I smelled cassis and we worked on Inflore de Cassis, so it was there. But it's, it's sort of adding layers of culture, but it's very rare that I come back and say, oh, we should do that. It's not that direct. But it's the atmosphere also that sort of inspire you, mood or something like that. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to interview you today. It was so much fun, Olivia. I hope I didn't talk too much as I always do. No, not at all. I mean, I could ask you forever about what you think certain people would wear on what occasion based on your fragrance profiles. I love the uh, fragrance psychology that we discussed earlier in the pre-interview. I think it's such a fascinating aspect of scent that I haven't really thought about before. And it's what's extraordinary is that it's almost like a logical and exact science. How right this is, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's very much like... Um, when, when you know people that, that analyze your writing and, and tell you a lot about the way you write, it's very much like that. And graphology sort of gives you a very superficial yet quite complete sense of who the person who writes is. And uh, it gives you a good idea. And perfumery is, is very similar to that. It says so much about people. Thank you so much, Frederick, for joining me today on the Art of Travel podcast. To find Frederick's work, you can find him at m.frederickmal.com or follow him on Instagram at frederickmal. The Art of Travel is created and hosted by Olivia Lopez, produced by Jason Stewart, with music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you then.